Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Schigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. So today we're talking to Tim Holcomb, who is an entrepreneur and a professor of entrepreneurship and director of the John W. Altman Institute for Entrepreneurship at Miami University in Ohio. So today we're going to dive into a little background on Tim's career as an entrepreneur and his path to Miami University, and then specifically his work there at the Center for Entrepreneurship, where as Tim says it, we don't teach students about entrepreneurship, we teach them how to do it. And I can personally tell you that's very true. Also, uh, he will share some of his ideas on how to capitalize on their alumni base and specific things that they've been doing to help students gain internships during this lost COVID summer, and what it means to launch high growth companies in the Midwest versus the coast. And finally, Tim's bet on the next fast frontier, which is all about data and specifically capitalizing on the data and IP available at universities that are just waiting to be commercialized. Please enjoy this conversation with Tim Holcomb. All right. So super excited today to catch up with my friend, Dr. Tim Holcomb from Miami University. Tim has a lot to share with us. He's the, currently the Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship and Chair of the Department of Entrepreneurship in the Farmer School of Business at Miami University and Director of the John W. Altman Institute for Entrepreneurship at Miami, which has recently been elevated to full department uh, status. Prior to that, uh, Tim was the Jim Moran Professor of Entrepreneurship and Executive Director of the Jim Moran Institute for Global Entrepreneurship at Florida State University, uh, University where he helped raise $100 million to establish the nation's largest interdisciplinary entrepreneurship school. Tim earned his PhD in Strategic Management and Entrepreneurship from the Mays Business School at Texas A&M University and his Bachelor's in Accounting and Information Systems and his MBA both from the University of Louisiana at Monroe. Tim's career actually uh, very interesting. He's designed a great, great life for himself. He, he is an entrepreneur, started out his professional career at Accenture and then founded Telecom Global Solutions and has been in the telecom industry. That company was acquired by what, what is Flex, what was Flextronics. Tim ran the network services division to over 800 million in, revenue and 8,000 employees in just two years. He's very active on the scene here in Cincinnati and currently is helping four venture-funded companies, ReliaQuest, Oros, Circle, Microtech, and runs one of the best entrepreneurship competitions in the land. (laughs) Miami's uh, entrepreneurship program is now rated in the top 10 in the country, uh, which is incredible. So thank you for coming, Tim. Thanks, Tim. I'm glad to be here. I'm sure I could have taken another 15 minutes with more of your accomplishments and activities. Tell us a little bit more about that journey, your path, you know, to where you are today and how that's informed what you've been doing at Miami. Well, I'll try to um, summarize the summary. <laughs> I tell students that I'm, I'm on my third career. Uh, when I came out of um, the uh, master's program at University of Louisiana in Monroe, I took a position with what was then Arthur Anderson's Management Information Consulting Division. It's been 1986. 
I thought it would be uh, a short um, uh, tenure there as I tried to figure out what the heck I wanted to do when I grew, grew up. And 13 years later, I was I found myself working with a number of Fortune 100 companies. Uh, I spent time with uh, Nike, PepsiCo, Frito-Lay, uh, Lufthansa, American Airlines. So it was a great opportunity for me to learn, um, at least at the higher echelons, how uh, corporate America dealt with strategy and, and individual problems. I didn't um, anticipate uh, the opportunity to uh, start my own company, but uh, that, that opportunity presented itself in the late 90s, about two years after the U.S. had deregulated the telecom industry. There was an enormous amount of capital that was flowing in to the what today is the 3G build-out. Back in the day when a cell phone could do one thing, make a phone call, um, the U.S. found itself uh, way behind the rest of the world with a number of technologies, no standardization, the whole bit. So I took the design build run methodology out of Accenture, dropped it into the um, wireless 3G build out, uh, launched, <laughs> wasn't smart enough to start one company, actually started four at one time. Uh, Telcom uh, Communications was our holding company. Telcom Global Solutions was our Network design company and basically doing radio frequency propagation modeling, designing the, the networks on where to place towers and, and antennas and, and such. And then we had a construction company that poured concrete and stacked steel, erecting the, the towers you see up and down the interstates today. And then uh, our long-term play back before recurring revenue was a thing was an outsourcing company and our, our long-term strategy with telecom was to acquire and and run uh, operator assets, fixed and wireless operations. The uh, macroeconomic environment had a different idea when the markets began to cool in the early 2000s. And we had an opportunity to um, put the company up for sale and, and exited in the sale of the company to Flextronics. And it was an exciting period for me. I got to, we went from a business plan to almost 300 employees on 40 client engagements in 15 countries, uh, all in the span of about 24 months. Uh, then sold the company. I moved to Europe for the third or fourth time and, and uh, launched the network services division for Flextronics. And two years later, we had about 8,000 employees, as you mentioned, and almost 800 million in revenues. I decided at that point though, that, that uh, I, needed to, I needed to go to detox for my uh, my corporate environment, that I was at a at a point in my my life where I really wanted to to um, decouple and and to decompress a little bit, and I did. I went back and got a PhD at Texas A&M University, and I made my way to Cincinnati after seven years at Florida State, and and it's been a real blessing and, and an incredible experience. And I, um, as you know, Tim, I, the the Miami environment is a pretty special environment. Our students are are special and in, in the program that we've erected there in the entrepreneurship world, so to speak, is, is pretty unique as well. And, and and I think that one of the things for me personally that that is gratifying is to, to once uh, and for all be able to bring 20 years of 30 years of experience to bear to to make a real impact on 18, 19, 20, 21 year old students. And, uh, and we know it's, it's working. I'm not alone. <laughs> We have 14 uh, faculty, uh, all but two of which had started their own companies. 
We have a, a rich diversity of talent, including a, one faculty member that had a 25, 30 year career in, in um, entertainment and uh, generated 65 regional Emmys and was a, a finalist for two national Emmys, Jim Friedman. So you, you take this eclectic group who have a real passion to serve students and to, to support alumni uh, activities once they've graduated. And it's, it's really been gratifying for me to be a part of this program and the, at this uh, university for the last uh, six years. Yeah, I think they're so lucky to have you and the other faculty that actually have built businesses uh, successfully. I think that's, uh, you know, the, the students probably don't, don't even understand what they really have uh, when they have access to you. So what have you learned about what it means to, to teach entrepreneurship? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I like to say we don't, we don't teach students about entrepreneurship. We teach them to do it. Entrepreneurship is, is an interesting discipline. Uh, first of all, no college on campus, on any campus, should own the franchise for entrepreneurship. If I, if I look across the uh, graduates from Miami who have gone on to do really uh, wonderful things in uh, the startup ecosystem, a large majority of those were not business school majors. You had um, uh, interactive media studies, mechanical engineering, uh, philosophy majors, liberal arts. I think one thing that, that we've learned is that entrepreneurship is, is eclectic in, in that it's interdisciplinary in the way in which we work together with disciplines from lots of different areas. So I think, you know, so one thing that is, that we, we like to say there are kind of three pillars to what we do at, at uh, Miami. One is that we've, we've built a set of curricular and co-curricular programs that are tr truly interdisciplinary in nature. And evidence of that is last year, we had over 2,800 students take at least one course in entrepreneurship. For the first time ever, we had at least one student from every major across campus participate in the program. That's all 116 undergraduate majors. And that, now that, that, that sounds like a big deal. Like, do you happen to know, like in other schools, is that how, how close are they to that? Or are you miles ahead in that stat? For, for a university that has an engineering school like uh, Miami does, I would say we're in, we're in the minority on that regard. I, I'm not aware of any other university that can attest to having at least one student from every major involved in their program. And one of the things is, that's important to note, we, we're a co-major. So for those outside of academic, that may not mean anything, but by, by being a co-major, um, we're basically telling students, we don't want you to major in entrepreneurship. We want you to major in mechanical engineering. We want you to major in interactive media studies. We want you to major in economics or finance or accounting get a co-major in entrepreneurship and we want to teach you how to apply those skills to solve real problems. I love that. So a second, a second important pillar of what we do is that we've created a program that is wholly practice-based and immersive in, a, in our approach. Um, I know at some point our um, administration will probably hear this podcast and they may flip over when they hear me say this, that we have, we have 18 courses in our curriculum and we have zero textbooks. And, and the fundamental belief there is that we do teach theory, we teach methodology and process, but when a, a textbook is first released, it was written, the writing actually started seven to eight years ago. So it takes seven to eight years to get a, a first release of a textbook to market. So imagine in 2015, 
a textbook in entrepreneurship that had no mention of Facebook, Airbnb, or Uber. That, that, I mean, that underscores the whole point of this podcast, Fast Frontiers, <laughs> that those innovation frontiers are happening so fast. And if you're not able to process that and keep up, you're, you're going to be left behind. Yeah, and I use the analogy with, with our alumni uh, when I explain why we're, we emphasize a practice-based immersive approach. And I use the analogy of, of uh, basketball. I, I grew up, I'm going to tell my age now, but I was a big fan of Michael Jordan back when he played at University of North Carolina. He was recruited by Dean Smith, and you know his first year was magical. He um, rookie of the year in the NCAA, hit the winning shot against Georgetown to, to win the NCAA championship. But imagine if uh, Michael Jordan was recruited to get a degree in basketball, and the first time he ever touched a basketball was when he took his first job with the Chicago Bulls. That's higher education. The challenge we face is that today is we want to give students as many shots on goal as possible with the fundamental belief that when they, when they move beyond Miami and when they graduate and go out into the real world, um, that they are job ready day one. You know, central to the design of what we do in our program is this fundamental belief in the um, transformative power of learning by doing which is one of the reasons why so much of what we do is uh, with our students uh, requires uh, relationships with people like yourself. Uh, you know very well that we, we've worked really hard with our program to, to integrate with the, the ecosystem, not just in Cincinnati, the startup Cincy movement, but uh, across the U.S. We have strong relationships on the West Coast and the East Coast, buffeted in large part by the, the alumni that have gone on to do some great things in those markets. Yeah, we the interns that we've had and that you've helped with at Refinery have been just head and shoulders about, at, at the undergrad level. Just kind of remarkable that you've been able to do that. So the experiential part of what you emphasize, I happen to agree with wholeheartedly. I, you know, my degree is in electrical engineering and I've, I've shared the same sentiment. You go learn something <laughs> first right. and, and, and then apply it. So given this, where we are today with, with COVID and universities and schools all trying to figure out not only how they open, but are they going to open in the same way or is something totally different? It seems like it's a, you know, thinking like an entrepreneur, uh, a, a classic opportunity here. Uh, it's, um, it's a big challenge right now, uh, Tim. And, and I think we, most university presidents and Faculty and, and staff will will attest to the fact that we're 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 in unfamiliar terrain. We pivoted at, at Miami. We pivoted in in a roughly 18 hours from uh, an announcement on 3 p.m. one afternoon from uh, President Crawford that we were as of 8 o'clock the next day going to be fully remote. And so we took 25,000 students across four campuses from in-class instruction to Zoom and, and WebEx. It wasn't without some fits and starts, be very clear with that. But one of the interesting things that, that suggests that the, the students actually valued the, um, the approach that we took is that uh, the uh, student feedback, the, the, rank, the ratings of, of faculty performance actually went up for the spring semester. And so I, I think um, we've still got a, we've got a big challenge ahead. I, I, 
I know President Crawford and, and our provost Jason Osborne at Miami and, and other university presidents are grappling with the, the challenges that these directives to 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 keep distance and and to protect the health of of uh, students on campus are just are taking that very serious. For us in entrepreneurship, it's it's been an even an even more interesting challenge for us. As you well know, Tim, it's hard enough to start a company when you've got five people in the same city or in the same room. This past spring, we ran our Capstone Startup Accelerator program with 17 startups, all of which had founders spread out in different uh, physical locations across the U.S. and, and outside the U.S. And, uh, and to be able to manage that process in a decentralized fashion has created some unique challenges. I will say that, I mean, the younger generation are very comfortable with doing what, what, what we do now. And their resilience, their resilience proved that they were uh, able to adapt as quickly or frankly more quickly than the many of the faculty and staff like myself who, who took a, a day or two to get caught up to the, the, the new normal that we face. Well, I uh, wish you the best of luck with that. It, it is, I think it, it is becoming the hardest to understand problem that we're facing coming out of this pandemic. So uh, I hope, I, I'm sure you'll pull through it because already, you know, you've seen and demonstrated as a culture that the university is embracing it, whether they know whether they know the answers or not, they're embracing it and moving forward, right. which is which is great. So when we think of these Miami University, middle of the country, you know, technology is embedded in everything we do nowadays. As um, as entrepreneurs or tech pioneers, what have you learned about the those motivations and where is that leading people? You know, in terms of, uh, it used to be that uh, if you wanted to be a tech entrepreneur, you just had to go to Silicon Valley, right? That's becoming less true. So, what are what are you seeing? Well, I, I think, I mean, frankly, Cincinnati is a great microcosm of approaches that communities should take to supporting entrepreneurship uh, at a uh, at a market level. I think one of the things we're seeing that 10, 15, 20 years ago, the flyover states were the last place you would look for entrepreneurial activity today, that's, it's quite the opposite. Yeah, and as we've seen uh, local communities, both with, with policies and other programs that, that support the uh, development of entrepreneurial activities, we've seen a, a, a much different relationship between universities and businesses in um, the local communities and those communities where, where education uh, policy, uh, investment dollars, and founders co-mingled together, I think special things happen. I don't think there's a, a better place to be right now than the Midwest when you couple rapidly developing capabilities that markets have in, in the Midwest with this incredible Midwest work ethic that we see we see in these young students, but but Let's not kid ourselves. We see a lot of the, the alumni who graduated and gone to the coast coming back. The dollar goes farther in Ohio than it does in San Francisco. The dollar goes farther in Columbus than it does in New York. There's no question about that. And so savvy entrepreneurs, both seasoned as well as, as uh, first timers, recognize the, the, the fact or coming to recognize the fact that 
the opportunity to, to launch high growth companies is as much evidenced here in the in the Midwest as it is in on either coast. Is there a story there you can share of a, a company that's that's doing that and how how that's turning out? One of my um, one of my favorite stories, student stories, actually at Miami University. Michael Marksberry is one of the co-founders of Oris. I first met Michael in the uh, summer of 2014. It was two weeks before the uh, fall semester began at Miami University, which was my first semester. And a young kid, 20-year-old kid, walks into my office holding three of my uh, articles that I published in academic journals that nobody reads. And he sat down in front of me and, and began to quiz me about the, the different theories that have been applied in these uh, articles. Unbeknownst to me at the time, I was being interviewed by Michael Marksbury to determine whether or not he was going to take my section of Entrepreneurship 401, which is a startup accelerator, or, or Tom Hoyer's. I guess I won uh, or had impressed him. But uh, Michael's a great example of that. Michael uh, and uh, Rithvik Vena are two Midwesterners who uh, looked at uh, a technology that had been used for 50 years by NASA, a technology called Aerogel. And they ask a simple question. Why can't we commercialize? Why can't that technology be used in the same way that it's used uh, by NASA to um, insulate astronauts through their spacesuits? Why can't it be used to summit Mount Everest by a common adventurer? And they set out to um, figure out how to, how to apply aerogel and then to uh, infuse it into extreme outerwear and success succeeded. They became the first two individuals to successfully infuse aerogel into foam in a uh, patented technology called SolarCore. Um, and so here are two young kids who figured out a, an incredible technological advance that, that today stand on the precipice, quite frankly, of completely disrupting the, the market as we know it. Uh, they did that They launched Oros when they graduated in 2015. They've raised uh, over 10 million in angel and venture, venture funding, graduated from the brandery here at Cincinnati, ran the company up until last year, ran the company um, in the OTR Pendleton region, region down in uh, downtown uh, Cincinnati. But it's a great example of a, of a company that took a technology um, that had been, uh, had been around for a while and figured out a way to commercialize that in a, in a set of products that you and I Almost, uh, almost take for granted, uh, and has produced a, a line of uh, apparel outerwear that is thinner, lighter, and more flexible. Any uh, alternative product available today? Yeah, I have my Oros jackets, and I, I love working with them. They're just great entrepreneurs, and uh, I hope they have huge success. The uh, you also have a, a unique alumni network from Miami that you tap into, and that you. <laughs> probably do a better job than most universities in terms of staying in touch with them. Could you tell us a, a little bit about some of those individuals and success stories? Oh gosh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to brag. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not an alumnus of Miami University. I'm not sure my high school grades would have allowed me to get into the university to be quite honest. But uh, one of the first things I, I noticed when I, I came to uh, Miami was an incredible track record of success. That alumni from Miami have gone on to they've gone on to do great things, 
both uh, from a business as well as a social standpoint. Um, and there are a couple of metrics that, that struck me. One was in 2016 when Money Magazine produced a list of the top 20 universities, uh, undergraduate uh, university um, uh, that had produced uh, Fortune 500 CEOs. Miami was ranked third, the third most CEOs in the Fortune 500 suite behind Stanford and Princeton, third. Miami University in Ohio. In uh, 2016, I think you, you know this story, uh, we looked across the market and saw an opportunity in, in the venture capital arena and then decided to spin up an undergraduate venture capital program. And uh, with that, we licensed a, a tool called PitchBook and began to expose our students to information about startups and, and venture capital and private equity. And after our first year of running this program, I asked a couple of students to, to look in, the, in PitchBook and, and just, I, I was curious. I wanted to see how many Miami alumni had gone on to, to um, launch funded startups. And what I learned is that over a 10 year period from 2009 to 2018, over 200 alumni had started 150 funded startups, those companies that had raised at least a quarter of a million dollars collectively. Collectively, those companies had raised $6.1 billion. And if you include C-suite executives, Miami alumni lead $7 billion unicorns today. And that includes um, Uber, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Go Health out of Chicago, um, Credit Karma out of San, San Francisco with uh, Nicole Mustard, MongoDB. It's an amazing story, uh, Tim. And so what, what we've done over the last four years at Miami is we've been rebuilding the, uh, or building the, the institutional network to provide access for alumni to our students, but also for students with uh, our alumni base. And it's uh, been incredibly uh, powerful. A, a great example of that is when the COVID-19 situation emerged. We run, and I know you're familiar with it, you mentioned it earlier, we run a, a summer scholars internship program, the Altman internship program every every summer. And every summer we place co-majors and minors at startups, venture capital, social enterprises, and, and corporate innovation uh, organizations across the US. When COVID-19 hit, over half of our interns lost their internship. We reached out to our alumni base. I sent an e one email with a request. Uh, and by, uh, by the end of the month, uh, this was April, by the end of April, we had every one of our 45 interns placed. And, and I, I don't know that, I don't know if there are very many universities that can attest to the fact of having 100% placement for interns coming out of the COVID-19 situation. But it's a testament to our university, but it's also a testament to the university and the approach we took it's really a testament to our alumni uh, who stepped up and uh, recognized the, the value of, of um, sophomores and juniors or rising juniors and seniors from our program, the impact they could have, and, and were willing to step up and, and commit to internships with those kids. It seems to me it's something that a lot of other universities could learn from, you know, when their development departments are trying to figure out ways to keep in touch with alumni, you know, and uh, they really need to keep them engaged. And, you know, as your network shows, they're, they're, they're proud of their university and they're happy to help. It's not just, it's not just donations. It goes way beyond that. And so you have this rich network 
which is just amazing. So, so tell us a little bit in case people don't know, you now have your, your venture group, the Red Hawk, Red Hawk Ventures. What's the status of, of their fund? They, this was the first time raising capital, right? The Red Hawk Ventures was established in the late 1990s, 1999, I think it was spun up as one of the, um, one of the first university or student-led uh, seed stage investment funds. Actually, frankly, it may have been one of the first or second undergraduate student-led venture funds. It was a half million dollar fund. That was our first fund. And, and it went through some fits and starts for the first 10 to 15 years. And about uh, four years ago, we hit the reset button. And uh, Red Hawk Ventures has made nine investments, Oros being one of those. Their thesis is to invest in student, but also alumni-led uh, ventures uh, in the, uh, the tech space. It, gives our, it, it fulfills a couple of objectives for us. One, this is a wholly student-led fund, so student, students serve as um, investment analysts. They make investment decisions. They, they get a little parenting along the way in that they have to um, seek permission before the, the actual investment is made, but they, they do all the analysis. They run the comparables. They look for syndication opportunities, and then they make an investment decision for those companies they choose to invest in. We've actually expanded that model. A year and a half ago, we saw an opportunity in uh, the uh, social space as well. And we had a long, rich history of working with, with organizations like Flywheel and Bill Tucker and his group. Uh, and But we saw they have a, they have a need for capital as well. And uh, about a year and a half ago, we had an alumnus step, up, step forward, Art Collins, who was the former chairman and CEO at Medtronic out of Chicago. Um, made an, an initial gift, and today we have $150,000 social impact fund. Made our first investment earlier this year, and that's another student-led fund that'll continue to focus on on the social impact side, uh, looking for organizations that have a, both a strong social purpose as well as a potential economic return. For us, again, it's, it's a great opportunity for students to learn by doing. It's another example of, of that learn by doing uh, approach that we've taken. Um, and as you know, because you've worked with a number of our students, we know that our, our, our program, our, our program to immerse students in venture and social uh, endeavors works. Uh, each time we have student teams go out and compete, they come back with trophies. And not that a trophy is necessarily the end game here, but it, it demonstrates the quality of the experience that students get at Miami and the, the, the approach that they're taking to, to learning and, and ultimately becoming good stewards once they graduate from Miami and go on to do good things in, in the market. So what are, some, what are some myths that you think might be out there about entrepreneurship and being in the middle of the country? I, I, you know, I, I'm, gonna throw, I'm gonna throw it out there that we're just not smart enough to go, to go do these, uh, these things that require a lot of risk and uncertainty. And I think the, bo the bottom line is we are. I mean, we've talked a lot about Miami, but just in the Midwest here, you've got universities like Indiana and Illinois and, and Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, who produce talented graduates year in and year out. So one big myth is that we don't have talented uh, graduates. That's not the case. We have universities in the Midwest produce some Talented, talented graduates uh, year in and year out. You could argue that until recently, we've struggled with institutional investment dollars. Having available 
dollars to speculative dollars to, to fund some of these endeavors, which has driven in the past founders to go to the coast in search of money. I think we've seen like like what you're doing in, in Cincinnati with Refinery is a great example of that. Drive Capital in Columbus, Hyde Park Venture Partners in Chicago, and, and the many others who are who are out there providing uh, bringing institutional capital into the region, so that we have equal opportunity to, to fund companies that that are born, operated, and run in this area. So probably the biggest the biggest myth really isn't a, a myth that, that we don't have the talent in this region. That's not the case. Um, I think the, the myth where we didn't have the dollars used to be a challenge. I don't believe that's a challenge, becoming less of an issue at least uh, today than it was in the past. And I, I think we also see a, a level of, of receptivity too that that is attracting in this boomerang analogy is attracting experienced uh, entrepreneurs back to the region for the simple fact that I men- mentioned earlier that the dollar in in Ohio, it goes a lot farther than it does in California. Yeah, not only that, but can you imagine the advantage you have taking some lessons you've learned in Silicon Valley and coming back here and being able to hire students out of Miami and Ohio State and University of Cincinnati, Kentucky, et cetera? You know, people ask me, oh, can you hire people, you know, in Cincinnati? And I, my comeback is, have you tried to hire people in Silicon Valley? You know, you're competing with Google and Facebook and Salesforce and everybody else, right? So it's a it's a strategic advantage to be here. So where do you think? So when we talk about fast frontiers and kind of leading edge of innovation, do put put on your uh, prognosticator hat for a second. You know, what do you see are some going to be some of the big themes in the next ten years or so? I, I um, man, I'm a firm believer, Tim, that data is king. We're 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 seeing this, you know. Artificial intelligence, machine learning, these technologies, I, I kind of laugh a little bit because AI has been around for three decades. Right. It's only recently that we've revisited the, the technology in, in, in light of the enormous amount of data that's being collected. And so I, I think if there's one market that excites the heck out of me right now is this transformation of data-rich sectors. I mean, we've got information or data that's, that's, that's right to be converted, analyzed, and flipped on its uh, on its core, and be to be uh, utilized for to make informed decisions going forward. And you know, look at healthcare, right? Uh, healthcare is probably one of the um, the, the richest data networks um, available in mankind. We've got information coming in about the body, about drugs, about uh, you know. We, we've seen in COVID nineteen this the spin up for vaccines and and treatment, uh, pharmaceutical treatment options, and at a, at a pace that a year ago we would have, no one would have believed, that we would have never believed that <laughs> we would get out of our own way and allow a really smart, talented people to examine this problem. So I think we've got, to, to me, the one area that excites me most is are those sectors where uh, are on the leading edge of really taking data and um, compiling that data and, and creating these accumulated information that can be analyzed and used for decision making. I think that's that's the next for, for me. That's one of the one of the next frontiers of, of fast frontiers of opportunity for uh, entrepreneurs to proceed proceed and, and, and to pursue. We have one of our alum in Chicago that's uh, capitalized on that sector, uh, Stuart Frankel. 
um, who founded uh, Narrative Science. They've got an, an AI engine that is based on technology originally uh, developed by, uh, or at, uh, by faculty at Northwestern. And so here's a great example of one of our alum that took a technology that's set on the shelf, looked at real problems in, in, the, in the market and, and was able to take that technology, commercialize it for a return in this case for Northwestern, um, but also to create a, an organization that today is, is one of the, the fastest growing AI technology companies in the US. Yeah, that's a great example of, I, mean, I think there's so much IP and research sitting in the universities within a 300 mile radius of here that you know that uh, for the for entrepreneurs who want to find some you know some minds to 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 go start unearthing i mean this is couldn't be any more right well you've seen the same numbers i've seen the, the u.s spends somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 to 75 billion dollars a year in in research in the academic world and of the thousands of patents that are generated each year, less than 5% are ever commercialized. And so one could argue that maybe we're, we're not putting dollars in the right place. I think the practical reality is we're, we're expecting a group, research faculty, we're expecting them to behave differently without the, the appropriate motivation and incentives to be in place. And so the, there is an opportunity, a real opportunity for the uh, startup ecosystem to capitalize on technology that's uh, being generated through these uh, university research organizations. At Miami, we've chosen to take a different tact. You know, we, uh, there, when I first arrived in 2014, we had a tech transfer office. We no longer do. Uh, those who are familiar with Miami University under, know that, that we're a, a liberal arts uh, university with an outstanding business school. And when uh, President Crawford came in, he saw the he saw the opportunity to apply liberal arts and business acumen to actually look for commercialization opportunities. And in 2018, Miami signed a partnership with the Air Force Research Lab, Wright Brothers Institute out of Dayton. And with that gained access to a patent database of over a thousand patents. And we've been working over the last 18 to 24 months with AFRL and, and others uh, in the in the military to to take these technologies and look for problems that could be uh, solved through the commercialization of these different technologies. So it, it, I, I think that I think there is a real opportunity, private organizations to to tap into the the um, the knowledge that's being generated, the technology. A lot of this maybe is, is basic research, is uh, more so than, than applied research, but uh, uh, meaningful knowledge nonetheless, and opportunities for some smart people, to, talented people, to look for ways to commercialize that in ways that, that, frankly, academic scholars may not think about, may not be interested in, in or motivated to uh, focus on. Yeah, I hope that uh, we find at least a few entrepreneurs, maybe boomerangs who are listening to this, looking for an opportunity, you can help them navigate the IP portfolio. I'll fund them. It'll be a great partnership. Tim Holcomb, thank you very much for coming and sharing your experience and background. We're so lucky to have you in this region. Um, appreciate you and good luck at Miami. Thanks, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like the show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Bob Meese, Chief Revenue Officer at Duolingo.